Well, let's kick it off tonight. We're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, way back in the Old Testament. We have been walking through the book of 1 Samuel for almost two months now. And tonight is finally the night where uh, the theme that is over the whole book, um, which is that Israel demands a king, they want a king. And so the theme that we have is that Jesus is our king is finally now relevant. So for the past two months, we've been talking about uh, Eli the priest and Samuel uh, and his mom Hannah and then war and all kinds of stuff. And tonight is, is the night where we shift into Israel finally demanding that they would like a king. And so from chapters 8 through 12, uh, we see that demand and how it plays out. And then chapters 13 through 15, we see uh, Saul become the first king. And then we see chapters 16 through 31 uh, Israel sees Saul kind of fall and David rise up and he's going to end up being their next king. So uh, chapter 8, we'll try to get through the whole thing um, tonight. But I hope that you leave tonight uh, understanding and believing uh, that Jesus is the better king. We're going to see the pitfalls and how uh, of earthly kings and how they fall short tonight. Uh, when I talk about kings, I want you to know I'm, I'm using that as a term for a wide variety of idols in our lives. So it could be material possessions, it could be uh, even our emotions, it could be uh, physically um, just people in our lives. It could be a wide variety of things, but uh, I'll use just the word kings over all of that. Tonight in chapter 8 kicks off uh, an important period for Israel and their history called uh, the United Kingdom or the United Monarchy here in Israel. So if you look at the Old Testament and you try to break it up into periods, um, prior to this, there was a period of the judges that after Moses had gone and taken them uh, out of Egypt and then Joshua leading them into the promised land, there was a period of a couple, few hundred years called uh, the period of the judges where they didn't have a king. Israel just had someone ruling over them in different capacities. Didn't work out very well. Uh, the judges weren't very good, and, and it didn't go well. And then you see Samuel come along, and now we see the United Kingdom happen. And it's going to be a period of about 120 years from roughly 1050 B.C. to 930 B.C. And in that, <coughs> you see three different kings. So only three kings uh, were with Israel when it was united together. That meaning means all the 12 tribes were together. It started with Saul, the king. He started off pretty good, then went downhill. Then you see David. Uh, he did pretty good, but he had his own issues. And then you see his son, Solomon, who was really wise, but he ended his ministry very poorly. Now, Solomon had uh, a son, and then he had a servant, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they divide the 12 tribes. And so after the United Kingdom, after that 120-year period, it goes into the divided kingdom. And this is where a good chunk of the, the Old Testament was written. So most of the prophets you read about in the Old Testament, they're in that period. We're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, and then even all of the minor prophets. They were in this period of the divided kingdom. So the 10 tribes, northern Israel is what they're called. And then two tribes, we just call them Judah, they divide and they go their separate ways. Judah, even though it only had two tribes, had Jerusalem and the temple in it, so it made them extra special, okay? Um, the lineage of Jesus goes through Judah. So even though there's just two tribes, they were pretty important. Here's what you need to know about the divided kingdom, just while we're having a little history lesson here. The divided kingdom in, um, 
in northern Israel went from 930 to 722, and it had roughly 20 kings. Every single one of them was evil. So northern Israel never had a good king. And then they were uh, conquered and then taken into exile by the Assyrians. So when you read the book of Jonah, and Jonah just hates going uh, to where God's telling him to go, he was going to the Assyrians. And they were just a nasty people. But God used that same nasty people to take his people into exile because they just didn't follow him. On the flip side, you had uh, Judah, who, again, from 930 all the way past 722 B.C., all the way to 587 uh, B.C., they had uh, almost the same amount of kings, 20 kings. And each one, um, they would go back and forth from good kings to bad kings, and they lasted uh, about twice as long as northern Israel. And so just a little bit of history for you. Um, but as we jump into talking about kings, I think it's built into each one of us to desire a king, isn't it? Now, we wouldn't maybe say that, but we all want to be influenced by somebody. We, we want to uh, serve something. We talk about calling on our lives. We want to we serve something. We want a purpose. We want to be told what to do, whether we know it or not. We want someone uh, with authority over us. We want to, of course, reap the benefits of having a king. How many of you want someone uh, with authority over you that you can find comfort and peace and security in? Someone that can protect you? I think we all desire that. We love living in America because we have protection, because we have a government, we have a president that takes care of us. Of course, as I said earlier, when I talk about king, it could be a person or it could be uh, possessions, all kinds of stuff. You look at um, hoarders. Hoarders, uh, they have kings, and it's their possessions. They find security and comfort in those things. You find uh, romantics. Romantics, they, they find uh, their kingship in love. They love to fall in love. You see addicts, they've got kings. They've got drugs that they find their security in. It's hard to break those addictions. There's folks who find uh, their health to be their king, prosperity to be their king, their dreams and goals to be their king. Some of you are going to have a hard time tonight because you're thinking, okay, this is, a, this is a sermon about kings, but I don't have a king issue. Jesus is king. He's my Lord. I get it. Um, let me ask you this. Have you found yourself stressed out lately about the presidential race? Anybody get just stressed out? Not, not just annoyed, but stressed out, right? Or you maybe engage in conversations at work about how this country is just going down the drain and it's got to change. Well, it might be true, but if you find yourself stressing out about who's going to be the next president, it may be an indicator that your hope <laughs> is in a king here in America. Because uh, it's not like anything's changing in heaven. Amen? And, and so we all are looking for a king. But it's... Um, it's amazing how servitude to the wrong king will always feel like slavery, and yet servitude to the right king will lead to freedom. And so tonight, I want you to ask yourself, uh, who's my king? Who's ruling over my life right now? And even if you're a believer, and I would imagine many of you are, if not all, uh, you might find that it's easy to let kings creep in the back door of our lives. So... Let's jump on in. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Jesus is the better king. If you've got a Bible, feel free to flip. Verses 1 through 3 say, 
Now when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And they took bribes and perverted justice. Verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and, called Sam- and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. All right, let's park there for a little bit. First thing we see is you can't be king. You can't be king. Think about it. Samuel, up until this point, like he is, he is the best thing since sliced bread for the nation of Israel. They were looking for a spiritual leader. They hadn't heard from God in a long time. And this young man is raised up and people know he's a solid guy. And he, he, he judges for his whole life. Like he's got a reputation. He's got credibility. If anyone should, should be king, it should be Samuel, right? And why would you even want a king if you already got Samuel, right? So Samuel's sitting there thinking things are pretty good. And yet his sons don't follow him. And so the people are like, hey, we need a succession plan. And you ain't the king. And your sons aren't going to be the king. And we want another king like everyone else. Man, that's got to be hard. It's got to be hard for Samuel to hear that. And I'm, <laughs> I'll be honest, I read that as a, as a pastor, and I think that's a gut punch of a reminder that even spiritual leaders can lead the masses well and completely fail at home, right? You, you can have it together in the public eye and, and just biff it at home. And Samuel's in that position. You would think, <laughs> after seeing Eli and his sons, that he would know um, he'd know what to do with his kids, but the truth is you can shepherd your children all day long, but they got to make a decision to follow the Lord, right? And so Samuel is coming face to face with that. Of course, as I mentioned, in the divided kingdom later on where uh, Judah had one good king and then one bad king, one good king and one bad king, for the most part, um, <laughs> we see the exact same trend happening. Solid spiritual leaders, and yet their kids don't follow the Lord. And it happens. It's unfortunate, but it happens. So, Samuel is face-to-face with his own failure. Generally, I think we look at failure as a bad thing, don't we? I mean, we look at failure as, as always a bad thing. If it's sin, of course it's a bad thing, right? It's always a bad thing if it's sin. But each one of us experiences failure all the time that's not sin, it might be uh, that you failed to reach your own expectations. It might be that you had goals or, or dreams or whatever for your life and you didn't reach them. It might be that other people had those expectations or dreams or goals for your life and they were not met. Sometimes failure is the grace of God. Sometimes failure is a gift from God. You see, failure can be grace for a couple reasons. Samuel's experiencing both of them. One of them is that it's the grace of God because it reminds you that you can't be king (laughs) and you can't crown yourself. You see your flaws enough 
and you realize, I can't do this alone. I would imagine if anyone in this room has come and placed their faith in Jesus, it has been uh, preceded by the thought, I can't do this alone. I need God. I can't do this on my own. Like, that's a prerequisite, right, for placing your faith in Jesus. It's confessing he can do the job and you can't. And so Samuel's face-to-face with that. Let me ask you this. What do you do uh, when you make mistakes? Again, I'm not talking about sin. I'm just talking about falling short, maybe your own expectations. Do you sulk or do you let it point you to Jesus? A lot of us sulk. But what does it mean if we're going to sulk? I think for a lot of us, what it means is to sulk in our own mistakes is our way of showing that we were holding out just a little bit of hope that maybe we were good enough to get the job done. To sulk in our own mistakes is us saying, you know what? I kind of thought I was all that. And I'm disappointed and kind of shocked that I'm not perfect. But spiritual maturity, you get to the place where you realize, you know what, I knew long ago and I'm reminded daily that I'm not perfect, but he is. And so every time I fail, I'm going straight to him. And you see that failure as a gift from God. But grace in failure can be grace uh, for a second reason. The first one being that you, you don't want to crown yourself king. And failure helps humble you. The second one is that others won't crown you king. I mean, the people, they know Samuel's a great guy, and yet they're looking at him saying, we need something more than you. And so God's allowing this failure to humble Samuel and for them to look at him and to see both what he's got going on that's good and then what he falls short in. I've had people ask me, uh, I've had people ask me several times at Crosspoint. Obviously, we do things a little bit different. We've got the big screen up, and Pastor Andy's got a gift of speaking and teaching, preaching, and so we, we obviously have him on the big screen. What are we going to do to make sure we as a church don't crown our own pastor king? That's a legit question. You've got to guard yourself against that. Ultimately, each person has to guard themselves. And a good preacher and teacher is going to be saying, no, don't look at me. (laughs) Look at him. Honestly, the screen helps. It's a lot harder for them in Hutchinson to not crown him king than it is for us. Because when he's done talking, he disappears. (laughs) At least on the screen. But you also will notice Andy does something uh, that might seem a little bit odd. uh, In that Even when he prays at the beginning of sermons, he talks about how flawed he is, right? He's called, just like the rest of us, to be examples for you. But he's giving you some transparency in that he's showing you he he doesn't have it all together. And that he needs Jesus as much today as he did on the day of salvation. He's guarding against it a little bit. I've shared the story before, and I I do on a regular basis, that when we were in uh, Hastings, Nebraska, planting that church just a, a couple years ago, Uh, We had a very small congregation. We went to Nebraska from Utah with just uh, four of us and Silas, and he was just a little baby at that time. And 
we went there, and for the first six months, we met in the home. We weren't even really public. We just kind of had a house church thing. It was a beautiful time, and we enjoyed it. Uh, but we knew to reach the city, we were going to have to get into the public. And, and so for the last three months that we were there, we had a building, and I was just preaching every Sunday, and we were meeting, reaching out to uh, the city, meeting as a community group throughout the week, and, and things were growing. Now, we were only there for nine months, and, and three of those months, again, were uh, publicly, we were meeting. But by the end of it, we had 20, 25 folks, and it looked like, even though that was still a small church, that it was going to keep growing. People were starting to hear about what was happening. They were finding hope in the gospel, and it was good. Now, we left knowing that we had uh, another young couple that were ready to take over in leadership. He could preach. He had a calling on his life. She had a calling. Um, and, and so we, we felt pretty good about it, even though we were heartbroken to leave after simply nine months. But I remember one week a couple gals came, and they heard me preach, and um, and everything was good, and they came back the next week, and they heard me preach again. It was kind of one of those bittersweet things because you could tell, oh, man, they're finding hope in the gospel, but we're going to leave really quick. And the second week they were there, we announced, or I announced at the very end of the sermon, we're leaving. <laughs> and it was, it was more graceful than that. But we announced, you know, what we, God was doing in our lives and our hearts, and, and, and that was it. And we had another month or two before we actually left and, and we transitioned. But I remember one of them called me that night. I, again, I'd only seen him two weeks in a row. Never met him before. And one of the gals called me that night and said, God has told me you're going to be the one to lead me out of my anxiety. And I was like, that ain't God. <laughs> I can tell you that. Because I ain't going to lead anybody out of anything that only Jesus can do. And I remember thinking, this is scary. That's, that, like, I got to make sure I'm constantly pointing to Jesus. A few weeks later, as we were getting ready to leave, we had one of our last groups as a community group, and a, a couple other ladies uh, were there, and it was really tense. It was awkward, and halfway through the night, uh, one of them brought up the fact that we were leaving soon and said, I don't think that it's God's will for you guys to leave. We're like, okay. So we had lots of people affirming it was. Of course, our own spirit was saying, yeah, God's telling us to leave. And they jumped into a, a mini rant about how uh, we were hearing wrong from God and how we were going to be the ones who were going to help them out of their junk. And they went so on and so forth through it. And, and we walked them through it, and we jumped in the car afterwards, and I looked at Tara, and I said, they're crowning us king. It's time to go. Even a tiny little congregation of 20 people. who know Most people in the city don't even know we exist. Yet we're still seeing people crown you king. I'll be honest, uh, it's really easy for any of us in this room, including myself, that if somebody starts to give you more credit than they should, for you to latch on to that credit. And I imagine there's some people here tonight that uh, have come to the conclusion that they can't be the king of their own life, but is there anyone here tonight discipling others who are kind of enjoying the credit that we're getting to be the king in their life? There might be folks crowning us king, and we don't even know it. There might be people in your life who call you first before they call anyone else. And you've thought for years, maybe that's just because, hey, we've got a great, solid relationship. But if you were gone, they would say things like, I can't live without him. I don't know what I would do without him. Maybe it's your spouse saying that. Maybe it's your kids. Jesus, while he was on earth, was tempted in Matthew 4 three times by the devil. 
And the third one was what? The temptation to be king over everything. And he said, no, it ain't happening. Later in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, the people cornered him, and they wanted to make him what? They wanted to make him king here on earth. And he said, no, it ain't going to happen. And he went off into solitude. Because he knew his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom, and he knew that he was going to be the king of that kingdom. And one day he's going to come back, and he's going to have a physical kingdom. But all I know is this. There ain't room in either one of those kingdoms for two kings. We can't be king. We can't be anyone else's king, and we can't be our own king. I know you guys love these messages. Aren't they uplifting? Every, every single Wednesday, you know, you can come here and just be encouraged. It's going to be good. This is fun. Verses 6 and 7 say, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. All right, second thing we see is God's response to rejection. God's response to rejection. So, several things happen in these few verses. The first one is that they say they want a king. Of course, Samuel, he's ticked off. But what's God's first response? Let him have another king. Doesn't that kind of surprise you? I mean, all throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, you see this theme of God being a jealous God. And you struggle with that. Like, what does that mean for God to be a jealous God? Well, God is not jealous like you and I are jealous. You and I are jealous in that we're insecure. And and so that is the heartbeat of our jealousy. God's jealousy is love, right? It's ownership. That he created us, and so we should be his. He's secure in his own self. He's, He's secure in his power. But God lets people walk away. I'm going to finish that statement in a bit. But he's letting them walk away. The second thing he does in this passage is he affirms that when they ask for a king and Samuel's all been out of shape, God's like, hey, this isn't a surprise. This is verbal affirmation of their behavior up until this point. Lip service wise, they're finally saying they want another king. But lifestyle wise, they've been following other kings all along. Some of us aren't verbally saying, we want another king, we want another king. But our lives are saying, we want other kings. We want other kings. And the third thing that happens in this passage is that God, as a loving father, still in the face of rejection, gives him a warning. He says, Samuel, I'm not happy about this. This doesn't catch me off guard. I'm not surprised but I want you to warn them about what it's going to be like to be enslaved to these other people, to this other king. We're going to see the next eight verses talk about what that slavery looks like. 
But isn't it interesting to see that God was picked last? How many of y'all remember? Okay, I know, I know 2016, it's different. Kids are different nowadays. Now, like, everyone drives to their, uh, their, their nice little house, and they push the button, they go inside, uh, the garage door opens, they go inside, they, they, the garage door shuts, and then you don't even know if anyone actually lives there. You just see cars going in and out, and so kids don't play outside like they used to because we all got to stay in our own little worlds. But back in the day, not too long ago, people would get together, kids would play together. It was crazy. It was weird. It was like real life. And sometimes, you know, you'd play dodgeball, kickball, all kinds of things, and um, and you'd have to do something that we don't like doing today. Like, this is, we hate this. We'd have to pick teams, right? Because the government didn't give us, like, a piece of paper that said, here, you're on blue team and you're on red team. We had to actually pick teams. Now, let's be honest. <coughs> didn't you, to some degree, get kind of stressed when you knew you had to be picked? And you're thinking to yourself, what if I'm picked last? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm just going to ask, and I'll be able to tell based on your, your reaction. Anybody in the room get picked last on a regular basis? Some of you, some of you know what that's like. But it got really tense, didn't it? When the best players, they start getting picked, and then at the very end, you know, there's just a few left, and everyone's just cringing inside, and it gets tense because it's weird. It's saying, hey, we're going to play this competitive sport, and it's going to show that one team wins and one team loses, but just for fun, we want to point one or two of you out and say, you lose twice. <laughs> you lose first at life, and now you're going to lose at this game. And we're not going to judge you, but we're judging you. And it's awkward. And you feel bad for those kids because you're thinking, this is going to spin their life out of control. At least you look back and you see that now. It's kind of sad. I'm laughing, but it's sad. I think it's sad. Deep down, I feel sad for them. God was picked last. God was picked last. What does that say about God, knowing he created the ones who would pick him last, knowing they would pick him last. Like, for us, if you're picked last, what's the temptation? Yeah. The temptation is to become really insecure and to run away. Or you put on a false sense of security, and then you fight the rest of your life trying to prove that you shouldn't have been picked last. But one way or another, you don't stay stable. <laughs> you, you, you go to one extreme or the other. On earth, when we get insecure and run away, it's hard for us to relate to a God who was picked last, knowing he was going to be picked last, and yet he's so secure in himself that he lets you walk away, and yet loves you so much that he pursues you every day. Everything you want in a leader, someone who's stable, who's got self-control, who's got the right amount of confidence. You see in Christ and more. 
I think you've got to ask yourself this question when we talk about kingship. You've got to ask yourself, who's worthy of being king? Like, who's really worthy of being king? Because it's one thing for us to look at Samuel in this situation, to look at 1 Samuel and say, God was picked last. Huh, that's crazy. He probably didn't like that. He's going to switch things up. But a thousand years later, he sends his son to earth looking like the guy who was picked last. Like Jesus comes in the form of a servant. He wasn't necessarily attractive. He didn't have it all together. He was a servant. He was a carpenter. He was the guy who looks like he should be picked last. And God said, I'm going to show them again through Jesus. And isn't it crazy? We talk, about, <laughs> we talk about who's worth, who's worthy of being king. Every time Jesus going up to the cross is spit on and cursed at and rejected, at the exact same second, his Father in heaven is being praised by the angels for all of eternity. Those two ends of the spectrum are taking place at the exact same time. Why is this so important? Because we see that people who are picked last don't usually die for the ones who hate them and pick them last. And yet Jesus... is picked last and dies for the ones who picked him last. He's a different kind of king. He's a better king. That's what God does when God's rejected. He shows you that his love is his greatest response. Now we see the warning. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. So now we're going to see a whole bunch of stuff. Look for repetition in this. We're going to read eight verses here. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will, make, he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your, of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. All right. Third thing we see is that subpar kings 
need your authority. Subpar kings need your authority. So these are the warnings of what this king will be like over the people. They knew what they were getting into. You want someone who's got authority? Here, this is what it looks like. Not too long ago, about a month ago, we went to a local diner in town, um, and we were excited. I took a, a friend, and uh, we were just going to have lunch. And um, and I don't know about you, but I look forward to going to restaurants because, number one, we don't have to cook. Number two, it's going to taste better than if we did cook. So it's a good thing. And, and so we went to this restaurant, and they only had a few things on the menu for lunch. And so we were looking through, and I thought, man, there's really not a ton to eat, but uh, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll have this. And so the waitress came, and I asked her ab- about this, and she said, no, we ran out of that. Even though it was only, only noon, they'd already run out of that. And I said, okay. Um, and I was trying to figure out what else to get. And she said this. She said, but we just sent one of the employees to the store, and they'll be back soon, and so we might have that back in stock. And I looked at the guy who was with me, who I was having lunch with, and I was like, yeah, I ended up ordering something off the menu, but I was not too pumped to get it. Why? Because when I go to a restaurant, I know deep down that every single restaurant here in town, whatever their name is, whatever food they say they serve, they're all got a Cisco truck backing up a couple times a week, unloading the same kind of food, right? I know that deep down, but I want to pretend like I don't know that. I don't want to go to a place that's going to serve me what I can get myself from the restaurant or from the grocery store a few blocks away. Doesn't that just take the fun out of eating out? Doesn't it just take the fun out of it? And in the same way, if we have earthly kings, isn't part of the benefit and blessing that they have a power that we don't have, that they can do things that we can't do, that they are good in ways that we're not? And what God is saying is if you want an earthly king, he's limited to the power that mankind has. And it's not much. And if you want him to have power, guess what it means? He's got to take it from you. What did you see in the repetition here? At least seven times you see the beginning of each verse. He will take. He will take. He will take. He's going he's gonna to ravage the land. He's going to enslave you guys. He's going to take all the freedom that you have, and he's going to make it. He's going to make it his own power and authority. You see, that's the thing. God has a power and authority that's just inherent. He's omnipotent. So he doesn't run out of power, and he doesn't need you to give power. You can't give. It's like saying, we're going to give God glory. Can we really give God any more glory than he already has? Right? We, we can point to him. We can reflect But we can't actually add to the glory of God. Just like we can't add to the power of God. He's got his own power inherent to him, regardless of what we do. But any other king in your life is dependent on your power being transferred to them. Doesn't sound as good anymore, does it? 
Israel's hearing this, and they're still okay with it. Even when they hear that they're going to be slaves. Let me ask you this. Who, this is going to sound silly, who or what on earth would you be a slave to? Of course, don't answer it. Who or what on earth would you be a slave to? Most of us would say no one or nothing. And if we're super spiritual, we'd be like, Jesus, you know, of course. But on earth, what, what, what would we be a slave to? The devil, he's sly. He's kind of smart. And so that's why he tries to sneak shackles on you and I. He, he tries to come in the back door and put chains on us before we realize we're even enslaved to something. Just yesterday, I came home for lunch, and uh, Silas, he sits, he sits across uh, the table from me, and he was asking me, as Tara w- was in the kitchen, it was just me and Silas, he was asking me, he said, Daddy, can I have a chip? Because I was eating chips. And I said, no, Bubby, he can't have a chip, because he's two and a half, so he, he doesn't get popcorn, chips, things that he could choke on, right? And he knows this because he's asked like a million times. And I've said, no, you can't have chips. But he saw the bag and he saw me eating and he wanted one. And so he said, okay. I was like, that's pretty good. Look at that. He said, you wanted chips? I said, no. He said, okay. So he left it alone. But then he kind of leaned up on the table uh, instead of sitting back in his chair, he leaned up on the table and, and kind of put his arms over like this. And so he was a good chunk of the way on to the table. And, and I said, Bobby, what, you, you can't get on the table. He said, okay. And he stayed right there. And then he said, I want to see the chips. I said, okay, you can see the chips. So I turned the bag to him. Now he's like face to face, like a foot away. He's just staring at the chips. And he said, Dad, I just want a little chip. I thought to myself, a little chip, salt. I mean, just like break off a little piece. It'll be all right. So I broke off just a little piece and I gave it to him. He said, mmm. He said, Daddy, another little chip. And I said, okay, it's fine. I mean, he's little, but he's got a gullet the size of, of a seagull. And so he does pretty good. I gave him another little chip. He said, Daddy, I want to hold it. I said, okay, fine. I let him hold the little chip. And he said, Daddy, can I have big chip? And I said, no, you can't have a big chip. You can have another little chip. Before you know it, he's got his hand in the bag, and he's eating whatever chip he wants. And Tara turns around, and she says, did you just see what happened? And I looked at him, and I said, yeah, <laughs> I do now. I do now. It happens that way, doesn't it? You say, no, I'm following Jesus. I get it. We live in America. There's temptation everywhere, but I'm going to follow Jesus. And then the devil says, but would you take just a little bit of this? Okay. And then a little bit becomes a lot real quick. It happens. It happens all the time. 
You see, there is not one idol or king in your life, whether material possession or person or whatever. There is not one thing in your life that has power and authority outside of God that you didn't give. Right? Look at the things that you struggle with. You struggle with fear, your anxiety, you struggle with lust, you struggle with your thoughts. Who gave them authority? If you're a slave to fear, who gave that fear authority? If you're a slave to lust, who gave that lust authority? And I know it's easy to play the victim card, and we all sympathize, right? Because we know the power that it feels like those things have over us and the bondage that we feel. But at the end of the day, we have to realize that God has authority, and he's given mankind some authority, but everything that's enslaving you that's not God has your authority transferred from you to it. Whether it tricked you into it, whether it just bold-faced lied to you, whether you got desperate and needed it, or at least in your mind, you had to give it authority. And this is what's hard because I'd imagine there's a lot of Christians who confess, maybe daily, maybe weekly, whenever, Jesus is Lord, but find themselves enslaved and in bondage to many other rulers throughout the week. Let me ask you this. What are you stressed about this week? What are you frustrated with in your life this week? I know I'm asking the people who probably many of you would say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm asking you, what's stressing you out this week? Is that stress an evidence that Jesus is Lord? Or is it evidence that something else is ruling your mind and heart this week? That something else took power and control from you? You look at unforgiveness. Somebody's got power and control over you. They might not even be alive anymore. They might not even be anywhere close to you right now. And yet they still got control over you. Resentment, bitterness. What's, what, what's ruling you this week? You see, let me, let me say this before we move on. Because earthly kings, whatever that means, don't have power unless it's given to them. You can always tell. You can always tell there's idolatry in your life if you find yourself exhausted by holding up the things that only have power that you give. Earthly kings will wear you out. Because they demand that you lift your hands up high to keep them lifted as rulers over your life. For some of us, we know because it feels exhausting to keep those things 
enslaving us. Isn't that the crazy irony in it? We're exhausted because they enslave us, but we're exhausted because we've made them slaves or we've made them rulers over us. But Jesus, on the other hand, who has a power all his own, is, and he is the only one worthy to be king, is standing here saying, you're going to lift your hands to me as well, but you're going to lift your hands as someone who has had the chains and shackles broken free, and you're going to be praising me for the freedom I give you. So you're going you're gonna to serve and be a slave to a ruler one way or the other. But one of them, when you lift your hands, exhausts you. And the other one, when you lift your hands, is a sign of freedom. And you get rest in it. And that only comes in Jesus. That only comes in Jesus. Verses 19 on. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The last two verses. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. The last thing we see is what we're really looking for is Jesus. They're demanding a king because they want someone to fight for them and to judge them. Nobody does that as well as Jesus. So, Israel, in case you ever have a, a little Bible quiz, why did they want a king? Because they saw what the other nations were doing, and they wanted to be like them. Isn't this crazy? Okay, think about it. I know, I just got you for a few more minutes, so stay with me. Isn't this crazy that the context is God shows up in powerful ways throughout the history of Israel. They know his power and his awesomeness. They see the wickedness of all the other nations. They see God's hand against the other nations, and yet they are choosing to have what the other nations have. I tell you what, there's only two ways right off the top of my head that I can think that would make somebody see Samuel face to face and knowing he's got, he's got a relationship with the Lord and it's good. And seeing God's hand on Israel and then making them say, you know what, I want a king like other nations. Number one, either they've never experienced the Lord, <laughs> the way we can. Or number two, and this is what a lot of us fall into, when you get so weary and exhausted and downtrodden by the things of this world, you tend to settle for less. You know you got something good in God, but you see, I'm worn out right now. And I see that the people around me are doing okay. I just want to be like them. Have we not felt like that once in a while? I just, I just want to be like them. I love the freedom we have in America. But can we be honest? The American dream has let us down. 
And most of us get to the end of life before we realize, I couldn't really get the fulfillment that God created me to receive in him through my stuff, even through my family, through my job or my career. And what was once meant to be a blessing that we had freedom to choose those things has entangled us and enslaved most of the people in our lives and maybe even ourselves. And they're running the rat race thinking, I'm doing the best that's available. And Jesus is saying, no, you're doing the best available in a life that leads to death. But if you would die to yourself and follow me, you'd start to experience life. I got just a couple minutes. I want to share, um, share a story with you before we close out. Uh, it was a mile marker in my life. Many of you, you know um, my struggles in life, uh, that I didn't grow up a believer. Uh, I, I did not come out of the womb saying Jesus is the better king, right? And from the fourth grade on through a traumatic experience, I had an anxiety disorder, one that to some degree I still battle with today one that uh, made irrational fears rule my everyday life. Uh, I found myself through junior high, high school, and then on, having a hard time going into public places. The more people that were around, the more I just felt, I felt sick. I was scared to death. Uh, my greatest fear, this is again or irrational, my greatest fear was that every day I would wake up with the same fear that I'm going to get sick in front of people today whether it be strangers, family, friends, and I'm going to be embarrassed because of this traumatic experience I had when I was a young kid and I was sick in public and embarrassed in front of people. And it, it wrecked my brain. Got to the point where I, I wasn't going to school and I didn't know, I didn't know what future held. I was suicidal. I, I struggled on every level. And I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, three times in a year and a half period, around the age of 19. But before I did that, I was doing okay, but like it wasn't living, right? There's, there's surviving, and then there's living. And I was surviving, but I wasn't living. And I was still figuring out, like, do I even believe in this whole God thing? Yeah, I was going to church on and off. But I got hooked up with um, a psychologist guy in uh, Wichita State, university and uh, he said hey if you come in and let some other students like see me helping you or, or see me in the the therapy or whatever then you can get like a really good price on this uh, deal and, and I said okay fine I'll do it so I came and I started meeting with this guy and he's he's helping me in some ways and he asked me one day a question that like I never wanted to have asked okay and that was why don't you just let your greatest fear, maybe he said, why don't you just let it happen? Just get sick. Make a fool out of yourself in front of everybody. Right, so he's saying, the traumatic experience that helped send you down this road, why don't you let it happen now? Thinking that somehow it would break me free of some chains, right? I went home and I thought about it. And over the years, I had become secure in my insecurity. I had got to the point where I was coping with the anxiety and I was taking different medicines and I was doing different things to help make sure I didn't get sick in public. 
And for the first time in a long time, I thought, I guess it is a possibility. And instead of helping me, it wrecked me. I got to the point where I, had to, I dropped out of school. I couldn't leave the house. I, could, I, couldn't feel, I couldn't go anywhere. I was scared to death because I thought, I thought, man, my worst fear is going to come true. Sometimes you find <laughs> when you get used to slavery, you get fine. You find that, that the greatest comfort are your own shackles. And you get used to them and you start to embrace them. We all know folks who have drama in their lives and they say, I don't want drama, but they actually like the drama. And I came face to face with that question. And what wrecked me about it was the idea that if I don't have this anxiety anymore and I'm freed from it, it's going to reveal the real problem. And that's me. And I've been using my anxiety as a crutch for many years. It's been my baby. I say I hate it, but it's become part of me. And if it wasn't anxiety, it would be another issue in my life. The problem is not the slavery to the anxiety. The problem is that I was enslaved to the wrong king. And if I don't have the anxiety, I'm going to find that I still have me. And that's the problem. And I don't know what that looks like, but I didn't want to see it. And it wasn't until years later that I found myself with similar questions with the Father <laughs> in heaven asking them to me. And my response was different. Because he healed me of the things that were really the issue. I needed a new reputation. I needed a new identity. I needed to place my security and trust in something that wasn't myself. And, and so the anxiety was one of many issues. And I found myself with a God who's saying, I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to ask you to walk down a path that's going to be hard. But you're going to find healing on this path. And you're not going to worry about being embarrassed because your security was purchased on the cross by my son. And your identity was given to you because I created you and I get to tell you who you are and you can't lose it if you get embarrassed or screw up. And I, I, found, I found myself with a different king and a different kingdom and the rules are different. And it changed the way I live. And it does to this day. It doesn't mean there aren't temptations on a daily basis to go back to that old kingdom and to have that old king that was anxiety over me but it don't rule me. Let me ask you guys this. Some of you are here today and you're struggling with who's really ruling your life because you've been tricked. Maybe you're finding yourself working too many hours at work, chasing a dream that you shouldn't have. Maybe you're finding yourself with a king coming in the back door telling you you need to go to one more soccer game for your kids at the expense of your marriage and your family and your relationship with God. Some of you going home tonight and you're going to jump in that car, you're going to turn on your country music or whatever you got going on, and you're going to start daydreaming about old relationships and old junk that you say, I'm glad I'm done with, but you're still daydreaming about it. And Jesus is whispering, you're being deceived. They can't give you 
what I can give you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're realizing that you have confessed Jesus as Lord and you want him to be Lord, but you forgot to renounce all the other lords in your life, and so they're battling for number one in your life, and that's where the frustration's coming. Maybe tonight you need to renounce those other lords because there can only be one king. Or maybe you're here and you've never made Jesus your king. And for the first time ever, you're realizing he is a different king, a better king, one that offers rest and freedom. And tonight would be a good night to join his kingdom and to confess him as Lord and to follow him. But as I pray and close us out, I want to leave a little bit of room in this prayer uh, because I believe God's working on each one of our hearts. And I don't know what, uh, what specific to you he's saying, but I'm going to trust he's saying something. So let's take a little bit of time and pray.